everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hi, Russell. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am. I'm good. Like in myself, I'm good but I'm quite ill. Um, for the listeners uh, who will not know this, me and Russell have attempted to record this podcast probably a record number of times. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we, we, it seems, it seems whatever, I don't know what's going to be said in this podcast, but the universe has been trying to stop it happening. Um, <laughs> we both had to cancel for numerous reasons. And then today's come up and I woke up and I've got a sore throat and I'm ill. Um, and I thought I am not, cancelling again <laughs> so i apologize up front to the people listening for my nasally voice i will hopefully go through and um cancel out any coughs or splutters i make during the podcast but i apologize in advance because i'm terrible at editing um if that does still come through you, you never know those nasally qualities that might sort of add that gravelly gravitas maybe if, yeah yeah. That, that's what that's what everyone says they said you need there needs to be more gravelly gravitas in the podcast that is my number one comment um but yeah i'm good other than that how, how's your day been so far well all of our new phd researchers and as you know i'm heavily involved in research uh, have begun this month so it's been really busy understandably mm. everybody's starting their new research projects and uh Bradford has like many universities such a diversity mm-hmm. so yeah I've been I've spent the day doing lots of teaching meeting lots of researchers so good but um tiring as you'd imagine yeah I, I imagine and for the people listening can you tell us a little bit about what it is you do I absolutely can so my day job is to run our uh, PhD training and development programs at the University of Bradford but my main passion and love and part of my job is to research male eating disorders uh, which is how we came to meet one another and uh, so yeah I do I do a lot of work on that um, and it's my main area of expertise. Exactly and then, like you said that's how we got to know each other. Actually, I had Una on the podcast recently, Dr. Una. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I remember when I was talking to her, because Una was one of the people who kind of first pushed me to want to do, well, I, I always wanted to do my PhD, but I I, did, I never really thought I could do what I actually wanted it to be on. I thought I'd just have to go for something that was advertised and kind of in a similar field. And she was one of the first people to push me and she got me in contact with you and we had some conversations and stuff. And that stuff starting yeah. to make progress now. But Una said to me that you are a male eating disorder royalty. So I had to I had to contact you. I seem to remember saying that I was um quite surprised, but but um, you know, very pleased as punch to be described in such a fashion. I've never been described like that before, but I have to admit I kind of love it. I feel special. <laughs> obviously, obviously. I mean, 
Una is Una is a, a like very famous and world class researcher, and I love Una. She's wonderful. Um, I think anyone who Una thinks is excellent is has to be excellent. Um, so, Russell, the first question we've you spoke about your kind of areas of interest is in male eating disorders, and you author, also authored a book called Male Eating Disorders: Experiences of Food, Body, and Self. Um, why is it you're so interested in male eating disorders? Like what, what sparked it for you? There's two reasons, really. They fall into two categories. One was that the at the time, I don't I have to say, I don't think it's changed that much, to be honest. But at the time, the research reason was really sound. They're really neglected. They're poorly understood. Um, they uh, We still have eating disorder services that don't seem to be able to tailor and be responsive to male patients. We've had changes in the NHS that are not very good to meet the spectrum of needs from different genders. Uh, so it, the, the kind of the rationale looking at what we already knew about men with eating disorders was quite compelling. And then the other reason is my personal experience because I was a man, I am a man with an eating disorder. And I remember when I was first referred for support, which was not, well, I was about to say not long before starting my research. It was a while actually before. Um, but at the time, all of the kind of uh, self-help and medical literature deliberately used female pronouns. Uh, I was turned away by a charity for some support because they said they didn't really have anything on offer. Everything was geared towards women only groups. Um, and various other experiences I had that made me think this is really worth spending some time investigating further. Because um, I hasten to add, you know, I don't blame for, you know, charities have to work with limited resources and you can't serve everybody. And so I understood that they weren't really set up around helping men. I just thought it was a shame that back at the time that was the case. Things have changed an awful lot in the sort of 13 years I've been doing this. Um, but also that we um, we sometimes make or we made back then men feel as if they were maybe an odd one out for having those experiences. And I just refused to believe that was true. I, I couldn't quite believe that. And we had no reliable kind of figures on men at the time. Um, but I, I didn't think for a minute that I was the only man who was approaching these charity services uh nhs services needing help for an eating disorder so those are the two reasons that i got involved in the first place yeah and i i really resonate with the um the fact that services just don't seem to be kind of designed for for men or you know i i um i've written a, a paper recently with James Downs who you, you probably um know of and hopefully we're getting it published in a in a, a journal um about the fact that the the kind of um services and there are diff different we're kind of I don't want to give away too much but in case you know it does get published and stuff but looking at the fact that or trying to highlight the fact that this there's these barriers in place for men um the fact that you know services are kind of made up to be um for women and they're feminized you know dave chawner who um, i've had on the podcast as well and i'm sure you know um the comedian he once said to me that 
you know, every time you see an eating disorder image on Instagram, it's always like footprints in the sand or butterflies and, <laughs> and rainbows and you know, everything's kind of designed with that feminine touch. Um, and yeah. then on, on top of that, um, and an area that kind of is in my heart is the fact that there's the muscularity side <clears throat> of disordered eating and eating disorders that are just under, just almost ignored in, well, I think they are ignored in services. Um, and I think that seems to be an area that's predominantly male. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that in particular is wildly underserved because we rely uh, on medical diagnoses and classifications so heavily, which I understand why we do. We need labels for things and we need to know what we're calling things and have a shared language for treatments and research and so on. But there is a problem that if something isn't recognised as a formal medical classification, then it tends to uh, what, miss out on vital funding to research it further. It tends to be lesser understood. It tends to perhaps not feature into the clinical treatment pathways that people are offered and that kind of thing. So there is there's a, a debate that's raging right now in the world of eating disorders which is this idea of uh mode muscularity oriented disordered eating and um muscle dysmorphia which is where it stems from is uh that was kind of situated with body dysmorphic disorders which some of your listeners might know of or be familiar with um and actually there's a there's a lobby of male eating disorders researchers who are saying there's so much of disordered eating in this it's not just about looking in the mirror and not seeing the real you that could be really quite heavily developed in terms of musculature it could it, it might you might have a, a quite an average physique you might have an extraordinarily muscular uh, physique that's hyper muscularity but you don't see that so the dysmorphic element of muscle dysmorphia is this thing of you can't see what everyone else sees or you think about it radically different and differently and that that then feeds into all of your behaviors about that life becomes about either gaining or maintaining muscle and you know you sometimes find men with mus um, muscle dysmorphia they miss social engagements because they're not quite at their optimum um, size and weight and you know people measure their muscles using tape measures and all sorts of things uh, or they'll they cover up you know so it's not the Im image you imagine of you know a half naked Arnold Schwarzenegger there with his with his physique out posing it's the opposite people often feel quite ashamed and embarrassed even though that may not be what occurs to us so muscle dysmorphia is firmly in the body dysmorphic disorders at the moment but there's quite a lots of traction um, in well let's look at this from the point of view of an eating disorder because a lot an awful lot of the treatment is about the obsessive diet the caloric intake the obsessions around food and regimen and supplementation and things like that so that's really current and it's I won't say uniquely male because there are people now investigating some of the features of muscle dysmorphia in women's bodies, in kind of professional bodybuilding mm. and elsewhere. But it's definitely male oriented uh, yeah. because we know that male bodies or bodies that are sexed as male yeah. um, are capable of 
um, gaining, producing and maintaining much more muscle than bodies that are biologically sexed as female mm -hmm. um, before supplementation or, you know, legal or illegal. So um, that whole thing's quite fascinating because it dominates a man's life as much as a, what would we say, like a more traditional eating disorder? I'm not sure that's the right yeah. word. But one of the recognisable three, so you have anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and more recently binge eating disorder. Those tend to be the three, certainly the first two, a little bit the latter one in public consciousness. But my argument is um, with various other researchers, Stuart Murray, Scott Griffiths, and many others, that says we need to be thinking about muscularity-oriented disordered eating in, as an eating disorder, and we need to be prioritising treatment as we would an eating disorder. Yeah, and I, I, you know that I agree with you um, massively on that, and I think um, there's also there's that study from um, Stuart Murray and a, a few other people as well, but I can't I can't remember who the other names were, but um, where they they had uh, psychiatrists and they gave them a case study of muscle dysmorphia. And they didn't tell them what it was and they just told them it was male or female and when they told them that the case study was male they they only correctly diagnosed it 50 percent of the time with muscle dysmorphia and I, i'm pretty sure it was on like it, the smallest amount was body dysmorphic disorder the rest of it was eating disorder so the, the psychiatrists more commonly diagnose a muscle dysmorphia case study as an eating disorder than as a body dysmorphic disorder um, which is quite interesting so it shows the kind of um even in the kind of symptomology or, you know, the diagnostic criteria that psychiatrists or someone will be looking for, it yeah. seems to show more as an eating disorder than it does as a form of body dysmorphic disorder. Yes. And, and actually there's a lot of men who are struggling with food, eating, diet, um, obsessive regimentation of exercise and food intake. Uh, but they do so in the absence of, dysmorphic tendencies so they don't have that thing where they look in let's say in a mirror and think that they're way smaller than their goal musculature they they're fully aware that they're aware they're at it's just never enough uh and so the kind of the compulsive and obsessive behaviors continue where they can't really let that that go that's the difference i suppose between someone who is recreationally uh taking care of their body for for some men and even some women that might involve um, emphasis on muscular strength and endurance and that musculoskeletal development. But um, that, that tipping point where it then becomes your entire life and you can't really have much of an unfettered social life because of your training regime, your reliance on body checking, body measurement, uh, monitoring what goes into your body, um, the, other, the other thing as well is, and this doesn't really count for all men, but for some men, we know that there's a lot of pop psychology and pop science that comes into it, stuff that you get from, let's say, popular magazines or um, through social media. So there's people doing, you know, really quite complicated calculations of how much protein goes to their, into their body based on, uh, and then compared with how much muscle they can reasonably develop doing certain exercises of sets and reps and and then and also to the point where you know people are measuring uh, outflow as well so that would be 
people get really struck on measuring their um, what their body excretes because then they think they can make calculations about well this much protein equals this and you know any nutritionalist or dietitian would would tell you it we'd love to think it's as simple as that you consume protein you do something with the protein it turns into protein on your body but it it doesn't sadly that's not really the way it works so you, you you have these men who are living entire lives around kind of making themselves into experts but also in a really punitive way because it doesn't it doesn't allow for sort of any deviation from these kind of odd calculations and regimes and what you put in versus what comes out or what comes on you in terms of musculature and it's yeah I think because diet and food is such a big part of public health and public health messages, and I get it, you know, having a healthy, active lifestyle and a varied diet, and I understand why governments all over the world kind of do that with their populace. They try and teach people how to eat better for a longer life, not just eat for pleasure that might foreshorten life or cause you to rely on medical services or whatever. But with it comes a lot of kind of oversimplification that people sometimes land on and then and that gets a bit misused or I mean I'm talking in generalities here there's plenty of people who don't end up in that situation but it can be confusing and we do have media particularly social media kind of peddling advice and diet information and actually uh, loads of it for starters lots of it's out of date and if you actually kept up with the journals the journal articles that produce the the most at the vanguard scientific discoveries you'd realize that this stuff is 10 years out of date now 15 years 20 years the other and the other one is just that thing of you want something to hold on to so you believe these messages because they're doable by the individual you don't need to be consulting a nutrition um, nutritionalist um but yeah we have lots of people almost living like they're world-class bodybuilding athletes but with none of the support that those people get around their diet and their training regime and everything and of course to do that as any professional athlete will tell you having um worked with some during my research um it, it takes over your life it becomes your full-time job but when you're an athlete that's okay because it's yeah. your full-time job <laughs> but for yeah. other people that's not that's not the same yeah yeah, and I, I, you know, I, um, I worked as a personal trainer, and um, I did my master's degree in exercise nutrition. So I've, I've, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm very thankful that I come from that angle because I've experienced like what it's like to have, like, you know, I've, for one, I've been the person with the muscularity oriented. I've never been, obviously, not been diagnosed with it because it wasn't, well, it isn't diagnosable. Well, muscle dysmorphia is, but I've never actually met anyone who's diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia, which I think proves the the problem there because I'm so ingrained in it and that you know, I've never met anyone. So obviously it, that's, but that's a whole different um, kettle of fish, but um, <clears throat> yeah, I've, you know, I've seen firsthand the, the level of obsession and the level of um, I think, I think one of the issues is that we, the fitness industry and the fitness community tie morality to your ability to follow certain norms within the fitness community. So if you like don't skip, Day, like days at the gym and if you follow the latest food trends and you only eat like the strictest diet you're like you can feel morally superior to other people and that like that just you know that's naturally going to be addicting because you can feel superior to other people by sticking to a certain restricted diet um 
Yeah. I don't know if that's something that's seen in other forms of eating disorders as well, but. Yes. So in, for instance, in, in both um, men and women with things like anorexia, you do get this sense of um, like a personal evangelism that you can do this when no one else can, but you can live on, you know, tiny amounts of food a day and that you stick to that and that this is the right thing to do and you have to be the best at it. You find that to a lesser degree, there has been a couple of studies in bulimia, less so uh, research into men, but where this idea of being a good bulimic, you know, how you do that, how you make sure that you can consume whatever you want, but nothing ever tells on you because you've got really, really sound strategies for, for ridding your body of the of what you forced into it. And so you, you do get shades of that. And the other thing that, one of the things that I, enjoy about my research and that I feel quite um, gratified, lucky, I suppose, that I get to do. So th there is a potential issue, you know, in the world of research, for anyone who's interested in that or, or like you are, George, you know, the idea of doing a PhD or doing a qualification by research or taking a research assistantship, whatever it might be, you tend to find that um, you very quickly become quite siloed you 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 know you might be a psychiatrist you know you were using that word before might be in psychiatry you might be doing clinical psychology you might be doing this or this or this and sometimes that because people necessarily then read in those areas research in those areas it can be a little bit foreshortening it can be a, a, a bit of blinkering I like the fact that because I do qualitative research into male eating disorders so I'm not trying to do clinical studies I'm really trying to find out about the human experience I'm not trying to say this many people have this disorder and this this is how many people have these symptoms you know all that kind of research is really important it's not for me it's also um we've got quite a lot of that research you can never really have enough frankly but, but what we don't have is that well what do these people actually live through? What do these men experience? Are other people experiencing the same? Or is it all really individual, what people live through and how they end up in that place? But that also means that I get to kind of cross, um, how would you put it, kind of topical boundaries. So the reason why I'm saying all this is one of the things that you were talking about there is kind of, is about totem, tot totemic symbolism of things like, being a constellation of body parts you know where you imbue something visual and uh, tangible with every with lots and lots of qualities and properties that it doesn't necessarily have you find it a lot in muscularity oriented disordered eating because people uh just as the gym gets you to sort of do a leg day or a chest day or a you know i don't know arm day or whatever um you you start thinking in that way where your body part you're no longer you holistically you're kind of the sum total of a set of body parts and they mm. carry such a powerful meaning for you that just you know you get the tape measure out one day and this kind of three millimeters growth in thickness of a bicep or a quadricep you know a thigh rather mm -hmm. um and then if that's gone in a couple of days time it, it doesn't matter that that might be to do with blood flow, circulation, fluid in, in the musculature, uh, in your subcutaneous fat, you, you know, that turns into a bit of an obsession. People 
take pictures of very specific body parts and almost kind of self-worship them. And then that totemic nature goes through to exactly what you said about this morality and about the body as a project. And that actually, if you nail your body project and if you live all those things really well and you stick to the diets and the regimen and you stick to the training and you um, extol the virtues of that, you get on social media to share your progress with others and tell them how they too can achieve it. Um, that again, it becomes this, this uh, idea of idolizing a certain thing and that this one thing, our bodies becomes blown out of proportion wildly because it now represents exactly what you said, our, our right to feel um, absolutely entitled to being the, the good person, the, the achiever. In, mm. in the cases of men, it might even be like an alpha male style thing. Interestingly, you don't find a lot of this stuff comes out of some of the clinical research. And so you do have to cast your net into critical men's studies, um, which would include kind of theories of on masculinities and bodies. You know, a lot of the body so embodiment research, lots of sociology, all of those things where people have studied the representational um, aspects of our bodies in society, both in terms of proving how good we are and proving how worthy we are through physical enhancement um mm. yeah I that's kind of like the sorry to put in but that's kind of like the I've, I've been reading recently about um like ma the obtainment of masculine capital and people yeah. trying to trying to kind of renegotiate um what they feel is their level of masculinity in comparison to like a hegemonic full masculinity right yeah. So, so for people listening, that's, I feel like that's a lot of long words I've just said. If you're not in, um, interested in this kind of stuff, um, so the um, let me rewind what I, what I just said. So yeah, so pe people are trying to get there's this idea of capital, and Russell, you can you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but this idea of capital, which is basically this this kind of theory of this this thing that you can gain by carrying out certain actions that you can use as a way of like uh, getting respect or getting power or getting um kind of some form of influence and that can be in any different fields and one field is masculinity so when i go to the gym or because i've got big arms i have my i get masculine capital and i can spend that and be more manly in different areas um, and i think the research seems to show at least from my understanding that men um sometimes grow up and they feel that they have a discrepancy from what is the their perceived version of an ideal man of what the man should be <clears throat> then they adopt these mus muscle building activities um in order to try and renegotiate or kind of figure out a, a bet like close make themselves closer to that form of masculinity um and that's something that i resonate with myself um, I think my my own lived experience was, and I'll stop talking soon because my voice sounds horrible, but um, <laughs> my own lived experience was that to me, um, you know, I saw my dad as being this really hardworking person and someone who could endure pain really well. He used to play rugby and he was a businessman and all the years, I'm not, he's not dead or anything. Um, but, um, you know, he, and so I saw that as what an ideal man was, someone who could take loads of pain and someone who can work really hard. Um, but then at the same time, I was kind of taught some, you know, kind of subconsciously and through like little actions and, and whatnot throughout my life, my upbringing that I wasn't that, but they tell everyone told me that was okay. But 
I wasn't what I'm supposed to be, and um, but that's okay. But to me, still, it it meant that I wasn't enough. And I think what I found was the muscle building and the gym was a way that I could get that capital of being someone who's hardworking and being someone who can endure pain because I can do that set for longer than anyone else can, um, and I can do it till I throw up or till I pass out or whatever. Um, so it's something I resonate with massively. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, isn't it, that you you say that about other male uh, or masculine figures in your life and that kind of comparison. We are, because we're self-aware creatures, we can't help but compare ourselves to other. It's very difficult to go through life and not do that. I mean, we have entire cultural artefacts set up around that. Education is mainly that. You know, we have grades and examinations and most of society has that through our work lives, promotions, da, 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 da. I think what's fascinating and what feels a bit unprecedented, it actually, when you look at the history of this stuff, it's not truly unprecedented. But for our purposes today, it is, which is that most men, particularly in the Western Hemisphere or in the richer parts of the world, no longer have work-hardened bodies that are uniquely and immediately identifiably masculine because not many men not well not as many men work in jobs that will give you that just because of your daily activity we're not really sending people their minds anymore we're not really making people work the land now again we're talking generalities loads of people still do those things lots of people still do very physical jobs not necessarily the majority of men though anymore and yet we've had this rise since the very late 70s to mid 80s of asking men to join said quite sedentary work days careers lives and yet to look the exact opposite so in my first book and then it's developed a bit more in the book that's coming out so I've got a load of new data and a new a new things coming out next year but I kind of float this idea of like brain of a banker, body of a warrior, which is, you know, lots of guys do work in office jobs, um, call centres, retail, uh, you know, all those things where you need your brain, you might, you might need communication skills. You, we're not saying those things are not masculine or unskilled. They definitely don't lead to hyper-masculinised bodies, though, that, that kind of just have popping, defined chisel physique because you're living on not much caloric intake, but you're expending a lot of awfully hard work. So your body becomes efficient. And yet this, you know, this rise of the pressure to look like that. So you may well spend eight hours of the day sitting at a desk, at a computer with a headset on, do it, and that's how you earn your living, provide for the people you care about, um, provide for yourself. But you, the idea of having a body that matches that which unless you are out there doing very specific physical activities, well, we're not talking about cardiovascular activity on its own, unless you're out there building muscle or working on a physique, that's not going to happen from you sitting in the chair, earning your living. And yet we push those images at men more and more. The example I think of that's reasonably current is Chris Pratt, who was kind of uh, lovable, kind of cuddly, be actor in the sense of sorry Chris if you ever listen to George's podcast um 
but you know his his kind of film roles and his role in parks and recreation various other things you know he's he's not meant to be some i don't know a sex symbol that would mm. save you in a war yeah that is his character that his body doesn't go with that and then you know he gets certain types of roles and I'm, I'm always fascinated because you'll never find this out for sure from the media did he change his body then start scoring those kinds of roles i believe i read one article where he suggested it was the other way around he wasn't fussed about the sort of body project but he did it because he landed a certain sort of role and said he could get into shape for that. Uh, I find that fascinating. And then all of a sudden he's transformed. He's getting different. He is getting sort of lead hero roles. He saves the day. He saves the kids. He saves the women. You know, we love to think all of that very old-fashioned man saves damsel in distress stuff is kind of gone. And I'm sure there's many script writers and uh, Hollywood actors who would say it is, by the way, the characters are portrayed. But we, we're still casting men with very specific physiques that involve showing lots of muscles that normally do not show through flesh and are going around saving people. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting you mentioned Chris Pratt because um, he was like kind of near the end of my like muscle orientated years. I'm still, I still kind of have experiences of some of it, but like I, I have like a, a distinct line where it kind of started to stop and during near the end of that i remember seeing chris pratt preparing for i think it was guardians of the galaxy or Guardians of the galaxy 2 or one of them and he was doing loads of little videos on his story on instagram or something and it was him with his diet that his nutritionist had given him and he had all like he had his desserts and he was only allowed like one of these desserts every day and he used, he used to always do these videos where he would be starving he'd go oh i think i'm going to eat two of my desserts and then I just won't have the one tomorrow. And he was just taught. So he was, he was obviously going through all this like stressful stuff to eat and he didn't want to do it. Um, and he put it kind of in like a playful way, but you know, that again, it showed that you know, he had to go through this kind of uh, like the horrible diet that he was being like you know, verbal about how much he was hating it and how much he was struggling to try and achieve this, this, this physique that he was expected to have. Yeah, and the, the other example I think that's a good popular one for, that many men and their, their loved ones can, can kind of get hold of is just, just pick any clip where Henry Cavill is talking about the regimes he endured for Superman and then for The Witcher. And we're talking, uh, Hugh Jackman's another good one, hours and out days straight of dehydration so that on, you know, the, on the technology that we use for filmmaking you can absolutely, without question, see muscle definition that is perfectly naturally concealed between even a very thin layer of subcutaneous fat. You know, subcutaneous fat, lipids in our bodies are really natural. And to get those things to pop in a way that's visual to an electronic eye, the camera, is it takes some real doing. And that's why they have teams of professionals helping them. They don't just kind of set up one day and go, oh, I'll just do this and go to the gym. And yet we we find that men are now just as much um, under pressure as women have been throughout history, that somehow that's normal. That's become our normal. This is This is what a normal, hard man's body looks like if you work out. And it isn't, you could work out like Billy or, you're not going to get to the levels you see on screen unless you are, have the team of people around you that are keeping you safe while you are stripping every last 
bit of water out of you and everything else that goes with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I have no problem talking about, I do get a bit of ranty, so I'll try not to, is the dad bod phenomenon. So then one of the, you know, Vin Diesel is in on a break from filming and it's like, oh, look at him, hasn't he let himself go? Look at that dad bod. And it drives me absolutely mad. So the idea is, what, you're some buff, dehydrated, nutritionally depleted, subcutaneous fat stripped piece of sculpture that's more akin to a non-functioning piece of art until you become a parent and then you let it all go. And it's as if we, it's as if popular media wants us to believe, bearing in mind other people who put these messages out there, that um, that these people live that way all the time, super dehydrated, super under a team of 20 people managing their nutrition and training. Um, and that every so often they'll go on holiday and totally let themselves go. And it's like, this is their job. They do this because this is their job and they have a lot of damn help doing it. They don't, you know, it's not just them and a self-help guide on how to get muscular. And um, and for some reason, sections of us, people I know, people I respect, lap that up and they, they set it as their goals, you know. I mean, abdominal muscles, no one knew what an abdominal muscle was, certainly not the Spartans, I'm here to tell you. Because to get them to pop out of your body in such a fashion, you might as well be inducing a hernia anyway. So mm. I'm being a bit glib and silly to make the point, but, but, but it's, yeah, a, it's, it's a really good point. And it's like you said, I was so into the the kind of bodybuilding world, and I think people always say to you, "Oh, you know," because if you follow bodybuilders, every po- photo they'll post is them shredded to the bone, like you know, two percent body fat. Um, and everyone says, oh, you know, but they take all those photos in one day and then they post them throughout the year. And, and you kind of accept that, but you don't really, you're still seeing them like that every day. So you don't, you're still, if you're on Instagram, you, it's hard to kind of get that into your head that it is like just a one-off thing. But I was yeah. quite fortunate that the, the gyms that I I trained in, we had a few professional bodybuilders and stuff who were in there. So I got to see them kind of in their, their I want to say, I'm in inverted commas, normal state. You know, they're still obviously incredibly muscular. Like, you know, no person can, like, most people can't even hope to achieve something like that. Um, but I got to yeah. see that they they weren't always 2% body fat. And that kind of helped me to some degree. Um, yeah. But it is, yeah, it is. And it, it, one thing that you, that kind of, and made me think of i don't know if you're into boxing um but recently uh tyson fury won uh the uh heavyweight fight against deontay wilder his third one and he's and he kind of got his titles and he's kind of stuck himself as a one of the best heavyweights of all time and he is if you don't know he has he has he carries quite a lot of body fat for someone who's a boxer um and Tyson, I really like Tyson Fury. And, and I thought that this is such an excellent thing because hopefully it can show some young people that, you know, you don't have to look a certain way. Um, like I always think it's so interesting that, you know, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury are equally as respectable. In fact, Anthony Joshua lost more times than Tyson Fury has, but Anthony Joshua is shredded and looks like a model. So he gets pushed in the public eye, but Tyson Fury doesn't seem to. And But anyway, as I was saying, he he won the, the, this fight and I thought this is such a good thing. And people have started posting memes already about, it's like picture of Tyson Fury in, in like his um, like swimming trunks or something. 
and I've it seen says them like, just this afternoon. He's celebrating, isn't he? Yeah, and people have put like, um, "This is this is peak male. This is peak male fitness. Do you deal with it or something like that?" Is it then like taking the mick out of it? Um, yeah, and it's just yeah, it's just it's so ingrained, isn't it? That like, that's wrong. Yeah. Even even the heavyweight champion in the world can't like yeah has to adhere to this ideal. Otherwise, we'll take the mick out of them. Yeah, absolutely. And that then that's just it, isn't it? You'll be taking the mick out of you won't have the moral high ground, you won't be in good standing, you won't be perceived as the best at what you do, no matter how, how many titles you win, because of this thing around your body. And that's the same with the dad bod thing. I would rather a guy was a fantastic dad, let's literally use the word, let's imagine this man is a dad, not Tyson Fury, some other bloke. And so yeah, he can't do two-hour workouts six or seven days a week because he's focused on his partner, his family, raising his kids, living his life. I'm thinking, well, you know, that's positive masculinity. That's the way to be. Spend the time with the, the people you love. Take as much care of yourself and others as you can. Be a good dad. Um, I'm not sure how that has to then be displayed in a body that's barely clothed because it's had a photo taken of it on a beach during a holiday or do you know what I mean and this I yeah. this primacy of male how have we ended up in a place where instead of releasing some of the patriarchal pressures on women's bodies to not feel as if they need to be permanently fit for male or others consumptions that they are a product to be enjoyed, like looking at a piece of art, that they're for sexual gratification or titillation. How have we ended up trying desperately to let go of that and redress some of that and fight against it in a place where we're now doing the same with men? You know, that actually your bodily presentation, normally in a near, not quite clothed state, is what really matters about life and not about what you do with your body and who your body is for, who it's there to help, how it's there to help you enact your daily life and, and live and love. And instead, again, to use the word, becomes this symbolic totem of, of something that really has very little do, to do with being a successful man. Um, I find it fascinating because there aren't many men who are immune to those things. You know, all of us have an image in our head People, mates talk about beer bellies together, yeah. mates talk about, you know, being unfit, mates talk about um, diets they're doing, you know, men uh, have, we've seen uh, an incredible increase in men taking diet products, and I mean, uh, open diet products, so things where you have to kind of join a club, or join a subscription, or be seen in a meeting, or, you know, so not something covert, where you kind of get an advice by yourself, and and hitting, getting on a diet, but thing, you know, Slimming World, um, there was a fantastic study that analysed the way that marketeers target male potential customers of Slimming World and Weight Watchers versus female Slimming World and Weight Watchers, but that was fascinating. So we know, we know all about this. There are people out there who specialise in going, your product's not going to sell to men unless you do this, this and this with it, advertise it this, this and this way. Now, again, this is all tied into some of the discourses on obesity, and obviously I study disordered eating, not just body image on its own. 
And so, yeah, we don't want a society that's um, so unhealthy that it's uh, dying way ahead of its time or needing loads of intrusive medical intervention. I don't think that's what anyone's aspiration for society was. But also, we're now using it as some huge um, hammer with which to hit a great many people because you can now be perceived as obese when in actual fact you just have a relaxed musculature and we go full circle back to the dad bod. You know, Vin Diesel with a picture of him on the beach or a yacht or something, he hadn't lost his muscle tone. He just wasn't, as you used the vernacular, shredded because he wasn't in the middle of filming. And his stomach looked a bit paunchy because he wasn't doing goodness knows how many crunches every day. Had he turned into an obese individual that needed clinical intervention to save them from heart disease? No. So leave the man alone. Yeah. <laughs> and in turn, leave other men alone who were in that situation, who go and do their daily run or whatever they can fit into their busy lives. But they don't look as if they just stepped out of an Avengers film playing Thor. So, yeah. yeah, and that, that's the thing with the with the stomach thing as well is I think often we see you'll see a man with like his stomach's like protruding a bit, um, but your stomach you're not naturally when you eat and when you drink you're you do get gases and build up so your stomach isn't always like straight lined even even if you are like ridiculously low body fat if you're relaxed your stomach's gonna hang out a bit because that's just the way it's designed. But if you're caught with that, it's seen as an it's a negative thing as well is you can't even have. So you can't even have human biology anymore. Yes. And, and that's another thing I think, I think in, in females in women that that's, that's, that narrative's pushed that that's normal and it's okay. And it's natural, but I don't think it is with guys that much. No. It's, the, it's no. the dad bod. Yeah, I agree with you. And that idea of bloating and water retention and things like that, you know, um, we've had to do so much work to help successive generations of women realize that they're, the natural functioning of their body is not something to be demonized. It might not always be comfortable. It certainly might not always be sexy in the sense of wanting to display it for the benefits of someone else. But does that mean there's something fundamentally wrong with it? No, we haven't done any of that stuff with men as far as I can see. I feel sometimes, um, I feel like we're losing the battle on both fronts. You know, there's a lot of women who are still under enormous pressures to work on their bodies like a project for the benefit of themselves and others. And it's interesting of what you said right at the beginning about morality, you kind of, loads of sociological researchers of fat and the body, anyone who's interested that you should look up Deborah Lupton's stuff on fat. Um, they look at all of this and it's this idea that we've turned this in on itself so that it's about you. So even to the point where we have magazines telling men and women in women's magazines you know this is about your being the best you you can be for you to make you feel better but it's still always linked to being not very clothed in front of other people somehow you know because if that was the case all the after pictures everybody would be fully clothed but they're not they're all in various stages of undress yeah they have many tiny shorts you know they're all over youtube shorts and tiktok and instagram and you know, where, where they've got their shorts hitched up right up to their hips to try and show off their legs. And I'm thinking, well, if this was just for you, why am I seeing this? Yeah. <laughs> it's just for you to be satisfied. You've got lovely, chunky, well-worked-out thighs. 
and it might also tie into uh, sexual attraction and the good old fashioned word that tends to be used in school biology the world over, mating, you know, mm. that kind of thing. Why, why, surely this is between you and your chosen partner. This is what I don't, I don't need to see you in a tiny pair of pants moving every piece of muscle for me. But it's, so, a, it's again, it's a thing, isn't it? I think it's, um, it's something that I, I've, I suppose, come, it's come to light to me more as I've been moving out of the bodybuilding world. But I, I like, you know, I used to spend hours every day looking at um, like guys in speedos and like zooming in on their musculature. And, and it, it, because it, like you said, I suppose I saw the body as separate from a person or separate from a being. I saw it as musculature because I, yeah. so I, cause I used to do that stuff. And if you'd asked me at the time, what was I doing? I would say, well, that's what everyone in my community does. It's what everyone in this, in my like net um, does. We, we were displaying the musculature that we've created. Um, but I know now that really, because I, I, there was always such a correlation between me posting something on Instagram and then me going into like a depression or feeling really shit for a few days. And I think it was, it was me hoping if I post this, maybe I'll get something from it that will make me realize that I'm worthy and then I never would. And then I'd go, I'd feel bad. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just so normalized. What I'm trying to get from this point is that it is just so normalized that displaying a musculature that it's just something people do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so we're, we're used to men's torsos, aren't we? we? We've never had the taboo on a male torso, uh, impeccably sculpted or not. Um, that we have on a woman's torso, you know, so right up until it was discontinued, for those of you who remember page three in some of the, the daily tabloids, was still a, a source of incredible contention, this idea of topless women. But topless men were just, they're just everywhere, you know, it only needs to be vaguely slightly warm in the UK and you can see some no matter where you are, you don't have to be by the seaside. I find all of that fascinating, the male body is being this site of visibility but in a way that we've been forced to um kind of hold back from being sexualized because then that has effeminacy and homosexual undertones talking from a scholarly theorizing point of view here you know so and even to the fact that men urinate together often in front of one another it's not you don't get any privacy but when you actually talk to real men there's an awful lot of them that wouldn't mind a bit of privacy when they're doing things like bodily ablutions and toileting they don't get it we're not set up that way and many men also won't admit that publicly because you know this is just the way we lads are but it's all tied up in the way what you're referring to is instrumentality how a body becomes this thing an instrument of its own without having a connection to an experience or a holistic human life or a day lived or whatever and we do force that separation and we use bodies in that way and we consume bodies in that way as well when you look at um pornography and and various other things look at how much kind of mainstream television has so much more nudity and semi nudity in it there is just no doubt studies have been done and it's increased incredibly and the the people who make the programs would say but that's because that's what people want to see we have no hard evidence for that currently but we genuinely don't know. Do, I suppose, it, I suppose it, it's almost like a um, positive feedback loop, though, isn't it? Because people like like something that's different and something that's exciting and so. So you know, if you do 
show something that's more sexual, people will be like, oh, that's different. Maybe I'll like Game of Thrones. We saw all kind of crazy stuff. So people will be like, oh, that's different. I'll watch another one, see what else they do. So then they start going, oh, people like it. We do this. Maybe we'll do a bit more of this. Yeah, And then, yeah. And then people are like, oh, where's it going to go? So I suppose over time, it just, yeah, I can see how it could naturally, you could naturally think, let's just keep doing more and more. I don't, obviously I don't agree with it, but um, I could see how that that's potentially happening. Yeah. And it is true, the food, the, you know, to, to kind of bring it back to kind of eating disorders or, or disordered eating, even if it's not a full-blown diagnosed eating disorder, you know, we, it's good that men are much more aware about food now. It's good that it, it doesn't fall to a female partner in a relationship to provide and prepare food, you know, in some archaic way that men are part of cooking and and looking after people's health through their nutrition in families and stuff. But this, the idea that therefore it's been food has exploded in abundance um, at the same time as venerated, if you can abstain from it, that's impacting men now in a way that we've not necessarily seen previously. And I think that nobody can escape food, neither men nor women. Um, you can't escape food you can't live without it you can live without mm. alcohol narcotics nicotine but you can't live without food and so everyone has some sort of relationship with food and therefore with their body and we all have a relationship with our body in terms of what we think it means or how it feels but the level of disconnectedness between each thing is growing we're, we're not we're not seeing more connectedness in our public health messages in the way we live our lives where breaking things up into compartments and working on each thing mm. and um and i find all of that fascinating because men are under such pressure to be men but also to not be too much of a man so the old version of being a man of dominating women and others of being sole breadwinner of mistreating people through physical force because they are biologically may biologically be stronger uh, of um, of inducing stoicism and silence in other men, but you know those things are no longer automatically venerated. But we're not really coming up with many other positive ways to be a guy and still retain some masculinity if that's important. To you. Yeah, and that that's that's my opinion as well. I think um, we're we're slowly villainizing more and more of the kind of common masculine traits, but we're not providing like other forms of, of masculinity. And I think the people that are clinging on to masculine, you know, like I said, but there are studies that are showing that masculinity plays this role in, in male EDs to some degree. Yeah. Um, so, Definitely. so if, if people who are clinging are so desperate to be ma masculine and be a man, if you just tell them, Oh, it's just a bad thing. They can be like, I don't give a, I don't give a shit what you're like. Why would I give a fuck what you're saying? It's the most important thing in the world to me. So I'm just going to carry on. But if instead we say, um, okay, yeah, maybe you do want to be a man and that that's fine. It will be, you know, again, in the commas, the, the man or whatever. Um, but how about you try this form of masculinity? Like this one's better. Why not try this one? And yeah. it's kind of pushing those across that's more important. Yeah, and the, the, the fact that we've gone, we've gone so far down uh, into a world of binary gender. You know, it, we, there are people who declare themselves to be non-binary. It, it strikes me that that's happening at a time 
when it's needed now, more now than ever before. Because we're, you know, this absolute, I've never seen so much of Blue is for Boys, Pink is for Girls, gender reveal parties. We are obsessed with binary genders. So not biological sex, but binary genders, you know, be masculine, be feminine. Goodness forbid you should mix it up. Now, many people mix it up. I know many strong, confident, settled men who are okay with who they are who have plenty of traits that could be coded as feminine. But because they've been brought up and continue to be in an environment where they are supported in being who they are, it just doesn't matter. But not all men have that luxury. And like you said, some men are put in a position where that cultural capital of masculinities, however you perform them, is so overemphasised and so terribly important that they feel there's nothing left open to them. I suppose that the one final remark I would say, and it really kind of captures all of this, none of this, and definitely some of the things you've said, is that we do know, so in, in my book, in lots of other people's work, so I'm not trying to claim there's just me saying this at all, we know for a fact that men police each other more than women police male bodies. Men are far more obsessed with what other male bodies are doing, who they're having sex with, how they look, what shape they are, how they're being used, are they on display, are they not on display? We know that comes from men on other men, not from other sections of society. And I think that bears some serious scrutiny. That's really interesting. And that's something that comes up a lot in the kind of, uh, it's a classic meme in like the fitness community is like, the, the, again, I'm sorry how stereotypical this sounds, but it'll be like, you know, I, I, I'd start going to the gym to try and get girls um, and then every compliment I get is from like other guys in the gym. And that scene that you see that all the time because it's such a common thing that people talk about. Um, and it is a classic thing that like, you know, like you say, yeah, guys are so much, yeah, guys are so, and it's something that I just, I, I didn't read, I've not read the research about it, but it's something I've seen so much is that when you're in the fitness community, it's other guys that you're talking about it with, even if you do think you're doing it for, you know, some kind of sexual reason or trying to attract a mate as we as you, you, the word you were using earlier um you know it, it it does seem to play more of a yeah it is it is men it is i suppose masculinity is intertwined into it isn't it it's not only what you self-perceive but how you perceive it compared to other people or or how that third party those other men perceive your masculinity is really important to you potentially yeah, and the same goes for men as for women. So um, in, in all that, the forms of that, and I'm deliberately using men and women, not male and female, because uh, a really famous sociologist says, uh, Ian Burkett, in, in a text, he said it in several places, but in a text called Social Cells, you know, he advances what other people have said, which is that we as human beings are not monads, which is a word meaning we're not like little single unit islands with no connection with the outside world. We're all in relationship with someone else, whoever that is, and whatever types of relationship those are, those are, and therefore we're often doing things to ourselves, but actually we hope they're a benefit to someone else or that they're valued by someone else or they get us something from someone else. And we can't really escape that. That's kind of the way our social world works because we are social creatures. And so invariably a lot of these messages around food how you deal with food how much or how little of it you have what you then do with it when it's in your body in terms of your bodily displays and what you turn it into in terms of energy 
all of that we know we're subject to other people's opinions voiced or unvoiced and we're not immune to those things because we're not monadic we, do, we don't exist as these lovely little neat closed off units so um i think that that will never change about the human condition we're always going to be in relation to or with someone else and so even even the least body conscious of us the least vain of us can't deny that we've still had experiences where someone said something about our appearance that we've either been greatly satisfied with and, and thrilled to bits with or we've been duly humbled or dismayed with because someone said something that we were hoping not to hear and so mm. those those kind of things do matter and then we do work on our bodies more to try and do something about it and I'm not convinced about what the health magazines say that oh well, it's just for you it's just for you to be the best you can be because we don't live as a just you or just me we live in groups with other people so it's rare that we're doing something just for us because it makes us feel good why yeah. why would a 28 centimeter bicep feel better than a 18 centimeter bicep <laughs> you know you know no, yeah I, I agree and i think um yeah i think uh, in the kind of and maybe i'm simplifying this far too much but i think the the fact that social media plays such a huge role in the fitness community and in muscularity kind of like almost proves the point to a to a degree you know the whole you are doing that in display for other people you're not as much as my people might say oh i just put it on my social media to keep track well you're not <laughs> like you you know that there are other people looking at that um yeah. well, you just you keep were, it on your phone or something well that's it you'd have you, you'd have your own kind of digital diary wouldn't you that's just for yours and then just for your personal viewing to track progress or something you wouldn't you wouldn't be plastering it everywhere else and, and invariably unless we all lived on social media but with the comments permanently switched off then you get feedback of one sort or another sometimes it's bad but often it's good if you've made some progress people also want to be supportive so if you seem as if you're working towards kind of like you said morally um upheld the kind of the thing that gets the most capital uh, credence about being a good person being the best you can be we associate good bodies very much with being a good person you could be morally bankrupt but if you look as if you're not you're kind of doing okay and so people want to be supportive so they'll say you know great well done i'm going to follow your glutes workout i'm going to follow your quads <laughs> workout. i'm going to follow your you know um and so you you do you get that it's called in the psychological words it's called payback payoff mm. you get a payoff there's a payoff from every transaction mm. and, 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 they, they, and those pot that those it's something I, I speak about quite often i think on this podcast is the that positive feedback can be just as as negative on your the on your psyche as the negative feedback because the positive feedback can feed into your the maladaptive and the kind of you know, the 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 disordered behaviors that you're doing because people keep saying oh well you look great and it's something yeah. that i think people it's, it can be quite hard to wrap your head around if you've not experienced it but the for me for example if i start going to the gym and then someone says oh you know my mum sometimes says to me oh you can tell you go in the gym again can't you because look at you look at your arms look at the, your arm and then i'll ask you know, I, I have to kind of say to her that you know i really appreciate you complimenting me but what that's telling me is that the couple months prior to me go, going to the gym, you thought I looked like shit. And now you're telling me that I look good again. So it's all fine. So now if I lose it, yeah. 
then I'll like shit again and then I have to feel terrible about myself. Yeah. And it's a very human thing as well, isn't it, to fear losing what you have. So if all of your positive comments or all of your um, personal positive boosting comments are all about something as ephemeral as muscle, because all it takes is a drop in activity and a drop of certain types of nutrition, uh, nutrition combinations, and that can vanish really very quickly because it's artificial, which is the other thing to say, most of it not the stuff you get through kind of just regular natural labor, but a lot of the very enhanced musculature stuff, there's a reason why people have to eat 4,000 calories a day just to maintain it, you know? Um, and then you what, you become hypersensitized to small changes because if all of your positivities come from that guy's got incredible legs, I've never seen a guy with legs like that, and all your comments are like that and all your progress and people are now learning off you, how to get legs like yours and you know then you really you some people live in fear of losing that even incrementally even a tiny bit and so you become uh you start looking at the minutiae in your own in your own pictures and because you've had to really scrutinize them to decide what goes on social media because it shows you in the best light and this angle is a bit better than that angle but only slightly um you, that's how kind of obsessive behaviors can start and no one ever thought that would happen and you never thought that would happen but you, before you know it you're trapped in this thing where every last angle pose poise you know every shape becomes important in a way well is it really you know the the idea of your legs being a certain size one day not the next but we get caught up in that and we and humans experience fear in all its different forms and very acutely terribly anxiety inducing and that is enough grist to the mill to make you keep going or uh you know never miss a day never give up follow all the latest diets and then before you know it's becoming your whole day to do that um yeah. so it doesn't surprise me that men get into a difficult dark place with it it doesn't surprise me that men then you know men i've talked to as part of my research then express the fact that they'd forgotten to listen to compliments that weren't about something physical. They'd yeah. forgotten what it was like to be told that they were caring or loving or that they'd done a good deed or that they'd made someone happy or because the only ones they'd learned to listen to were about, well, that's amazing. You've done that. Well, I'll follow you. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things. And we tuned the other things out. That's quite sad. It's a very reductive way of living. And it's certainly not the entire measure of a man. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, but I, I, and I, I also, you know, I've been there and I, you know, if people are listening who, who, you know, you're hearing this and you're thinking, God, this is, you know, it's how I am. Like, I get it. Like I've been, I've been in that, that world and I know what it's like to think that it's the only thing that's important. Um, but there are so many other important things about you. And, um, that's been the biggest thing for me is just building that foundation of what I like about myself and just showing your know, start originally it was I just didn't think I didn't like anything about myself other than the fact that I went to the gym and I just I built in things in, into my day that you know I could feel good about myself for doing and saying well I know I, I I do go to the gym but also I'm nice to people when I speak to them or you know I'm also um you know I'm, I'm quite smart I read stuff most days and you know I you know I, all these other things that I can like about myself that aren't about my body um and yeah I think that that's really important um Russell I, I feel like I could speak to you forever but 
we, 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 I try and keep this podcast relatively to an hour and we're already on to like an hour and 10, I think. So um, I'm going to bring us towards the devil's advocate. It's the devil's advocate. <laughs> so for people who haven't listened to a recent podcast, you'll maybe not know what the devil's advocate is. It's a new segment I've brought in, which is because often the people that I bring on this podcast are people that I find interesting and I like what they're doing and everything um, similar to this podcast. It's just me agreeing with everything they say throughout the whole podcast. So I've tried to bring in a question where I ask something a bit more controversial and try and be the devil's advocate. So Russell, today's devil's advocate question is, don't men with eating disorders just need to man up? <laughs> oh, that's delicious. Um, well, the problem is with that is that it implies there's a unitary thing, uh, you know, that a man is a unitary thing. So I'm afraid the answer has got to be no, because it implies that the version of man is stoic, silent, self-determining, already has every resource they're ever going to need, never needs to ask for any sort of help, never experiences a daily struggle, let alone a mental illness. Uh, so absolutely not. Um, and if I, if I got the choice of certain juicy phrases to ban from our English language, that would definitely be on my hit list, along with various other heavily gendered ones. Amazing. Thank you. Um, I, I really, I think one thing that I, I thought, and I'm interested in your, your opinion on this, because I've been thinking about, because I've been, I've got more and more interested in this idea of like hegemonic masculinities and that kind of stuff. Um, and I've been trying to think what, what would I think would be the, the traits of this ideal, like what would be a good version of hegemonic masculinity? And I think something that we could replace um, potentially stoicism with, or that, you know, the idea of having to be, yeah, I guess stoic and, and feeling better than and kind of arrogance and, and that kind of manly trait that they, there is, is this new term that I've learned recently, which I'll explain to people who don't know, you, pro you probably already know it, Russell, but um, ontological security which if I'm, if I'm right, is basically feeling secure in who you are to some degree or like kind of where, and it's kind of like you, you mentioned your friends who might not have the, the stereotypical masculine traits. They might have more of those feminine traits, but they feel okay in that and they feel secure in who they are anyway. Um, and I think that's, that's what, that should be something that a man can strive for because that, that also eliminates the idea that, um, people of other genders have to be, you know, the classic one is that you know, men are, are supposed to be or feel like physically more capable than women or just any kind of way more capable than women. And and I think that eliminates that because it says, you know, I did a tweet once. Um, this woman tweeted about how she was in a, she went swimming um, and some guy didn't like that she was beating him and he kind of, he, he like held her back and had a go at her. Um, and I tweeted, I said, um, guys, some people are going to be faster, stronger, and smarter than you, and some of those people are going to be women. Get over it. <laughs> and I think that's what that's what it's all about. Like you, you, you just have to accept your, like, yeah, accept who you are and accept where you are, and allow other people to be better than you, even no matter who they are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Um, anyway, on to the final three questions. 
Um, Russell, I ask everyone who comes on the podcast final three questions. Um, are you ready for the first one? I am. Amazing. Okay, the first one is, name a person, real or fictional, who inspires you? Oh, that's really difficult because a bit like you, I read a lot. I do read. Anyone who knows me knows that that's not a thick statement. I do read a lot. Um, okay, I'm going to go for silly. Jessica Fletcher. Because I grew up watching Jessica Fletcher with my mum and I love that woman. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, she's from a murder mystery series in the States called Murder, She Wrote. And I loved how she was no, most of the time, Jessica was fair-minded, kind, caring, but incisive and sharp-minded. But if you, if you just kind of took a swung at someone she loved, she was quite a tigress, but she always used her words. And I quite like that. Amazing. Amazing. Um, okay. Question number two. Name a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know that positives came from it. Oh, um, I think when I when I was transitioning out of one career into another, and I was holding a lot of um, sadness, I, I was experiencing a lot of grief about things. And for anyone for anyone who knows about transitional analysis out there, you'll know that there's a thing called a racket feeling. My racket feeling. It's like the default setting feeling was anger. And I experienced an awful lot of it. And the first part of my PhD, I was still in that place. I did my PhD as a mature learner. I was doing it part-time while working full-time. And that whole period now of about however many years feels really occluded as if it was lived in the dark. And, um, and I was often incredibly angry. I took it out on a lot of people that I loved and cared about. And I'm not in that place anymore. And at first I hated thinking about that time. But now when I think back, so much of where I am now comes from me having lived through that and through the people who stuck by me through that, being there and staying with me until we got to the, the person that I know I am now. So that will be my period, yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Um, that's, that's always my favorite question of the three. Um, cause I think it's really important that people know that everyone kind of goes through shit. And if you're going through shit right now and you're, and you're struggling, you know, positives do tend to come out of those, those horrible um, moments. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and the final question is a phrase to live by. Oh, um, I my mum's a Christian and I must admit I do like the do unto others as you would have them do unto you I think you can't go far wrong with that if you want mayhem destruction cruelty then sow it and that's what you get back and if you really don't want that if you want to live in peace if you want to be able to express care and love and concern and kindness then that's what you should try and give out even if sometimes you don't always get it right yeah, I like that. I like that. I think I think whether you're religious or not, I think you know, there are definitely things in in the religious texts that are. I think they are. They're lessons for life, aren't they? That's what they're supposed. To, that's what they're there for. Um, whether you believe in the um, religious side or not. Um, so yeah, thank you for that, Russell. Yeah. Um, Russell, thank you so so much for coming on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Yeah, it was great fun talking to you, George. 
Thank you. Thank you. And I'm glad I made it through with my horrendous voice. I just muted myself every time I coughed. I've heard your podcast. You're not that, you're not as bad as you think you sound. You just, you know, you just sound as if you're maybe doing some rehearsals to be a supervillain on Marvel. <laughs> like you said, it'll be that that gravelly, or you say gravitas. I love that word. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, maybe people, maybe I'll, I'll, this will be like the most listened to podcast ever. It'll be loads of it's like ASMR. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on, and everyone at home listening, as always, thank you so so much for making it through one of the podcasts, and I hope to see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at My Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out myminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there, and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.